Well, I invite you to turn in your copies of God's holy and inspired uh, word back to uh, the letter of 1 Peter. The letter of 1 Peter, we're going to be reading uh, chapter 2, uh, verses 4 through 10. And what we are going to, what we are reading here is one of the most important texts in Scripture for us to understand what it means to be the church with regards to our identity and our calling, the nature of the church, the mission of the church. What, why, when, when, when God uh, calls us to himself in Christ, why does he leave us here? Why doesn't he just take us on up, right? Why is the church here? Well, this passage of scripture is, is taking um, one of the biggest themes in all of the scripture, and it's, and it's boiling it down for us so that we will have a, a proper understanding of who we are and what we are supposed to be about. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses uh, 4 through 10. As you come to him, meaning Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, what a, a glorious privilege that you have loved us, that you have acted on our behalf, and that you constantly nourish us as a heavenly father. You correct us where we need correction, and you bear us up where we need comfort and consolation. And you do all of this, Lord, by giving, up, by giving yourself to us through your word. And so help us this morning, O oh God, to hear your voice and to receive from you 
this amazing truth that we need right now as your church struggling to understand our identity and calling in the midst of huge transitions within our culture. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Everything that Peter has said up to this point, all of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, everything that he has been saying is brought together in verses 4 through 10 as a stunning climax of his description of who his Christian readers are because of who Jesus Christ is. If you recall, we have said from the beginning that the, this idea that is pulsating through this letter is that we, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are exiles who are called to embrace and to embody the hope of Jesus Christ in a hostile world. Peter is writing to Christians who do not live in their native homeland. He is writing to Christians who are being persecuted. They are being rejected. They are being denied. They are not having a, an easy existence within their culture. They have absolutely zero power or influence politically or culturally. Can you imagine that? Everything about their existence is something that the culture in which they live, which is a pluralistic culture, is something that they reject. Now, what is pluralism? It means that there are lots of different cultures that are all trying to coexist. Does that sound familiar? Can we think of anywhere where we have lots of different cultures attempting to coexist. That's what's going on here. And what's interesting, and this might also sound familiar, I don't know, but what's interesting is even within all these different cultures that are trying to figure out how to coexist, one of the things that is constant here is that all of them are able to get along with one another except the Christians. The Christians are the one group in this area to which he is writing. The Christians are the one group that, have, that are being rejected and denied and persecuted. All the other groups are willing to work with one another, but they are not willing to work with the church. Does that sound familiar? Right now, in the city of Minneapolis where not only are they trying to figure out a way to get rid of police, but what is being suggested as a replacement is a, a group of, of, um, of Muslim police working together with anti-police, where you have very far left-leaning liberals 
willing to work with Muslims because they find that a better partnership than trying to work with Christians. Think about that for a moment. This project has already been attempted. All you have to do is read about what's been going on in Great Britain for the last 10 years. Where even one of the chief atheists that England has produced in Richard Dawkins has said that this, this plan that we had to get rid of the Christian influence in our society, we've been successful in removing that Christian influence, but what has replaced it is so far worse than we ever had to begin with. And what, is he, what, he, what he is referencing is the fact that as the, uh, Christianity stopped having its influence in that culture, what didn't occur was some great atheistic um, society rising up. What rose up is the totalitarianism of Islam. This letter in 1 Peter, as I have been attempting to impress upon us over and over and over, this letter could not be more timely for us right now. And one of the biggest reasons is because the temptation that you and I have, or maybe it's just me, the temptation is not to respond according to the gospel, but to respond according to culture or according to politics. Peter is writing to a group that live in a pluralist society where they are the single group that is being pointed out and rejected. And how do you think they feel? Well, they're concerned. They're scared. Many of them are ashamed. Did you notice that running through our early passages through in the earlier part of the service, that there are a couple of themes that are being held together. And one of those themes is this idea that if you are a follower of God in Jesus Christ, you have nothing to be ashamed of. That, beloved, is not simply talking about you as an individual follower of Jesus. Now, does it include that? Absolutely. If you are in Jesus Christ, even though you keep sinning, and sometimes even though you sin grievously, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, and because of your participation, as Peter has said, in the greater Passover that is found in the shedding of the blood of the eternal Jesus Christ, the way we respond to that sin is we confess it. We're honest about it. We're honest with God about it so that we can be renewed in hearing from him, yes, you have sinned. And yes, maybe that sin was grievous. But between you and me, 
I still receive you as a son or as a daughter through the perfection of Jesus Christ. Now, that is absolutely true. But that's not what Peter is talking about here. As we have been looking at the, this beginning of 1 Peter, I, I have noted that several different writers throughout the history of interpreting the Bible have noted that this letter of 1 Peter is one of the most condensed presentations of the totality of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That, that 1 Peter is, is a, this thick, condensed presentation of all that God is doing through his son. And so it, it is thick, it is, it is dense. And as we have been unfolding this beginning of 1 Peter, we've noticed that some of the most fundamental truths about the Christian faith are being given to us here. One that we have noted so far is that the Christian faith is an identity-driven faith. That we are called to know who we are in Christ so that we can live that out. We have noted uh, that what it means for us uh, to be followers of Jesus Christ is because of that identity, God calls us to be holy as he is holy. And, and how is it that we are holy? Well, that second principle that requires us to reject some things in order to accept the right things. To deny sin in order to embrace righteousness. To put away that, that um, frivolous ways that you have received from your fathers, right? In order to receive Jesus Christ and his calling on your life. We have an identity-driven faith, and that identity requires us to be holy as God is holy, which means there are things we have to put off, and there are things that we have to put on. We are to put away that empty life that we inherit from our earthly identities and to embrace the heavenly identity that we have in Jesus. Last week, what we did, we noted a third and that is this fundamental idea that when God is doing something, he doesn't do it all at once. When God decides to do something, he doesn't just do it and have it in its final form. But from the beginning of, from the beginning of Scripture to the end of Scripture, what we see is God doing things in stages so that the idea of growth and maturity are foundational to understanding what God is doing. It's foundational to understand what he is doing in us. One of the, that third fundamental idea of the Christian faith is that you and I are called to become what we are already accepted to be. Okay, these are some of these fundamental ideas. Now, here in 4 through 10, there is another fundamental idea that has already been flirted with, but now is unfolded specifically, and that is this. Even though each of you come to Jesus Christ personally, 
you do not follow him privately. Even though you come to Jesus Christ singly, you do not follow Jesus Christ separately. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, what I mean is not only do you have an individual dynamic that exists between you and Jesus Christ, but we have a corporate dynamic. And the corporate dynamic is as important as the individual dynamic. Let me say that again. The corporate dynamic, the communal nature of being in the church is as important as the individual dynamic, the personal dynamic that exists between you and Jesus. God, from the beginning of Scripture to the end of Scripture, we are told, is creating a people for his namesake because his desire is to dwell with a people forever in the fullness of his unmediated glory. You and I are not going to exist in the eternal state simply as individuals relating to Jesus. We as a group will be relating to Jesus. Now you relating to Jesus individually by you repenting of sins and embracing the the, uh, completed work of Jesus Christ is what draws you into the communal existence. But make no mistake, once you are drawn into this communal existence, it is this communal existence that is as important for you to live out and for you to maintain as it is for you to continue to live out and maintain your individual dynamic of that relationship with Jesus. It's not one or the other. And throughout the history of the church, when one or the other becomes emphasized, especially to the point that the other is not, things go awry. If you only emphasize the corporate nature, then what happens? Well, individuals are never confronted with the gospel. This has been, by by the way, this has been a challenge within our Reformed tradition. If you uh, go back and look at the history of the church on the continent, especially uh, in the Dutch Netherlands, uh, in the latter 19th century, the early early 20th century, there developed this issue where what began to be taught because they wanted to value the corporate covenant nature of the faith, they started basically teaching if you're in the covenant, then you are of the covenant. That if you are part of the corporate people, then that means you have all the individual blessings. What has happened in the Dutch Reformed Church over the course of the last three generations? It has devolved into liberal theology and With each succeeding generation, there is less and less participation, let alone interest, 
from the younger generation. Well, if I'm good because I've been born into the group, all right, well, cool. When we emphasize the private or the individual over the corporate, it has resulted in churches growing weak. Churches not being able to experience the fullness of who they are because there are people that are saying they are believers, but they are not participating in a local body. And so therefore the gifts that that local body should have because of the variety of believers that are there goes missing. And what ends up happening is everything gets dominated by the individual's relationship to Jesus Christ. And so one of the results here in America, going back, yes, even to the first Great Awakening, the good one, is that there has been this overemphasis on the individual to the point that the communal is not as important and within uh, the church, because of that individualist-dominated perspective, uh, the result has been a follower, uh, a followership of Jesus that is dominated by consumerism. Why is it so easy for individuals to church hop? Why is it so easy for someone to come into a church? and you know participate but as soon as something happens that they don't like they leave and go to another one well because the way that they are approaching church is based on a consumerist perspective i will go there as long as there is something that i like and if there aren't enough things that i like i can go find that somewhere else and the result even within the pca who values membership who attempts to practice local church membership, who has five membership vows that you take when you join the church. What ends up happening is those vows are not approached as vows. And people can willy-nilly decide if and when they're going to go to church or the level of participation that they have with the church when that is determined on the basis of their own personal tastes and desires and plans. So what we see is that any time the church gets out of balance, either overemphasizing the corporate and losing the individual or overemphasizing the individual and losing the corporate, things get off, right? The train goes off the tracks. I was trying to get that in before Jim had to leave for work but I did. <laughs> the train goes off the tracks. And what you and I need to become convinced of is not just simply because of the text uh, that is showing us this, but because of the needs that we have right now within the quickly changing culture in which we live is that the world right now needs us to rightly understand who we are so that we can be that 
in and for the world. With the changes that are coming, the changes that have already happened, the changes that are coming, we absolutely have to hold on to both the individual dynamic and the corporate dynamic. Now, why is this so important? I'm going to introduce an idea, and then we're going to, we'll take it up next week, Lord willing. Maybe he'll come back before then. What is God ultimately doing? We have said he is creating a people for his namesake. He wants to dwell with a people who reflect his glory, his righteousness, his beauty, his truth, right? He's going to dwell with a people, a group, right? And sometimes that has been called a people. Sometimes that's been called a nation. Sometimes that's been called a priesthood. But one of the things that all that, that, that is at the center of the different ways that the Bible describes this corporate people is in the concept of temple. Now, when you and I hear the word temple, I would imagine for us, we tend to immediately start thinking about a building, temple. We might think about you know, the temple, uh, David's temple or Solomon's temple in the Old Testament. Or we might think about, you know, the, uh, the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Or maybe we think, um, I, I haven't seen any here, but in several of the other places I've lived, including especially uh, South Florida, uh, you might see the local actual synagogue temple, right, on the street corner. So we tend to, to associate the concept of temple with the idea of building. That is not correct. God has used a building as a type and a shadow to help us understand temple. You see what I mean there? It's not that temple should lead us to building. It's the idea that that building is supposed to point us to temple. And why? Why was the tabernacle, why was Solomon's temple, why was the temple after they returned from uh, the Babylonian exile, why were those temples there? The temple that Jesus was presented at after his birth, right? Why were those temples there? It was because the buildings were a way to help the people of God anticipate this final plan that God had, and that is for him to dwell with a people. Revelation 21. And I saw no temple in the heavenly city. Why? Because its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will, be, will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, not anyone who does what is detestable 
or false who are written in the Lamb's book of life? Why is there no building? Well, because the building was always pointing to the idea of God's presence. And that presence existing within a community. That's the ultimate end. And for God to accomplish this purpose, he called a people. And then he redeemed them from bondage and slavery in Egypt. And then he brought them to his holy mountain. And he gave them his law. Or he gave them their, his law. He gave them the designs for the tabernacle. And when they built that tabernacle, we are told that the glory of the Lord descended and took up residence within that tent. And why is that important? Well, because the tent was made of skin. The tabernacle was, was not cloth and draperies. It certainly wasn't the nylon ripstop that are used for tents today, right? It was skin. Now think about that for a moment. God deciding to manifest his presence on earth by having his glory take up residence within skin. Is this starting to sound familiar? Why is it that in the Gospel of John, uh, as John is introducing Jesus Christ, does he say that Jesus was God and that he came and he tabernacled with his people? The presence of God that was in the type and shadow of the glory residing within skin in the Old Testament came to its fullest expression as the glory of God would take up human skin in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And Jesus' presence here on earth was described as a tabernacling, a templing presence. Now look back at our text. Who are we as the people of God, as the followers of Jesus Christ? He says, you come to him a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through the high priest, Jesus Christ. Beloved, you and I, because we are part of the corporate people of God, we have become God's temple presence here on earth. And the privilege that we have is not only in being that presence and interacting and fellowshipping with that presence, but in us, extending that presence throughout the world. Beloved, the world needs for us right now to be the church. And within all the chaos and with all, within all the hostility right now, what people need is the ordering presence of God. What they need is that presence of God's love that is not ethereal, 
that is not just kind of out there, but that took up residence in skin, in a tent, took up residence in human skin, in Jesus Christ, continues to be revealed through the hands and through the feet and through the mouths of those who speak on his behalf in order to spread his love and his presence within this fallen generation. This is who we are, and this is what we are called to do. More on this, Lord willing, next week, but let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, what an amazing privilege that not only did you not leave us in our sin, but you have redeemed us from that and then exalted even us to something that is so far greater than any of us could ever have imagined on our own. That even though we still struggle with sin as individuals, and even though we still struggle with sin as a congregation, we are your treasured possession. And we are a people in whom you have taken up residence through your Holy Spirit, and we are a people through whom your presence is made known in a world that desperately needs it. And so, Lord, help us to see church in a different light. Help us to see that corporate reality and for the importance that it is. And help us, O oh God, to then go out into the world and be the bouquet of life to those who will receive Christ, even as our witness becomes the bouquet of death to those who reject him. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.